Hey, before we start the show, we wanted to let you know about another podcast you might enjoy, Pod Save the People. It's a weekly podcast from Crooked Media, hosted by activist DeRay McKesson. Each week, DeRay is joined by fellow activists and educators to explore the most important news and cultural stories of the week, ones you won't hear anywhere else. And he'll do that alongside guests, ranging from John Legend and Ambassador Susan Rice to Kerry Washington and Soledad O'Brien. New episodes of the award-winning series Pod Save the People come out every Tuesday. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Skim This. What's in a name? This week, we're going to answer that question about a few different things, like when you see states passing voting restriction bills, what does that actually mean? Or why is it that the COVID variants suddenly sound like sororities instead of being named after countries? And of course, there's the origin story behind Lilibet Diana. We've also got the context you need to know about some of this week's biggest headlines, like President Biden's vaccine donation, the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline, and a major leak of billionaire tax documents. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. All right, let's get to some of the week's headlines and give you the context on why they matter. First up... President Biden has left the country. Here's the context. This is Biden's first trip abroad. He had to swat away some cicadas before leaving the US, but as we taped this, he was spending the day in Cornwall in the UK, where a big meeting of G7 world leaders starts on Friday. And that meeting is already generating some headlines. Biden announced the US is buying 500 million doses of COVID vaccines to donate to the rest of the world, and he wants other countries to join him. It's almost like Biden listened to our big feature last week on how the U.S. could address global vaccine shortages. Oh wait, he didn't? Oh, okay. But the truth is, big international meetups like the G7 are a great time for showing off what your country can do. So don't be surprised if Biden and other world leaders like Vladimir Putin try to make a splash of their own in the coming days. And speaking of Putin, he's just one of the heads of state Biden will be pulling aside for a closely watched one-on-one. Actually, lucky guy, Biden doesn't have to do all his meetings on Zoom anymore. And whether it's Biden's huddle with Putin, Angela Merkel, or Justin Trudeau, body language experts will have a whole lot of new material to analyze in the days ahead. Next up, hey, the U.S. Senate did something this week. This evening, the U.S. Senate, on a rare bipartisan basis, is passing a major piece of legislation designed to counter China and its global influence. Here's the context. U.S. lawmakers are nervous that China is catching up or even passing the U.S. when it comes to investing in the technologies of the future. And this $250 billion bill aims to stop that, or at least to slow it. The bill will increase funding for things like computer chips, lithium batteries, and artificial intelligence. Now, the bill heads to the House of Reps, where it should pass. But do you know the saying, you're only as strong as your weakest link or weakest bridge? Sorry, dad joke. Well, even though Congress might be able to pass a big competitiveness bill aimed at flexing in front of China, this week also saw negotiations on a bipartisan infrastructure bill basically crash and burn. Biden originally hoped to pass a huge $2 trillion bill to fund highways, bridges, schools, hospitals, and a whole lot of other things. 
Republicans, though, weren't really on board. Negotiations, especially over how to fund the bill, have dragged on. And even though Biden has cut the price tag in half, there's been no agreement on how to move forward. In the meantime, don't worry, America still has a C-minus rating for infrastructure from engineers. So what's the rush? We love our potholes. Okay, next headline. The sponsor of the Keystone XL crude oil pipeline pulled the plug on the project and backed out today. Here's the context. The battle over whether the U.S. should approve construction of a pipeline carrying Canadian oil to the Gulf of Mexico has been raging for over a decade. And on Wednesday, the company backing the pipeline said, screw it, we're giving up. Frankly, they didn't have much of a choice. Biden had already revoked a permit for the pipeline's construction, and its future was looking pretty uncertain. Predictably, environmentalists cheered the move and said this should inspire Biden to cancel other pipelines. Also, predictably, critics of this are complaining a lot. They say Biden's anti-oil policies will lead to higher prices for consumers and lead to thousands of fossil fuel jobs lost. Okay, last headline. The U.S. authorities are investigating the leak of details claiming to show how little tax is paid by some of America's richest people. This is not how Jeff Bezos was hoping to make headlines this week. The Amazon founder and world's richest person started off the week by announcing, you think I'm going to let Elon Musk beat me to space? I'm blasting off in one of my company's rockets next month. But after the news outlet ProPublica released a bunch of IRS tax documents on Tuesday, Bezos and Musk and a lot of other wealthy business owners, for that matter, are making news for something entirely different, how little they've been paying in taxes. According to tax data from 2014 to 2018, the wealthiest 25 Americans paid, on average, less than 16% of tax on their personal federal income. Considering the top federal income tax rate for most of that period was nearly 40%, experts say this data shows how the tax code creates openings for the rich to reduce their tax burden by using loopholes and deductions. So much so that their tax rate is often lower than it is for many working class Americans. What, if anything, is going to be done to possibly fix that? Well, we'll have to wait and see. A handful of Democrats in Congress have been calling for the creation of a 2% wealth tax on all the things the wealthiest Americans own, not just what they make in income. At least for now, though, it doesn't look like the White House is pouncing on these tax leaks as a political opportunity. Instead, White House spokesperson Jen Psaki focused on the leak itself, not what it turned up. She told reporters that the release of confidential tax info is illegal and that the White House takes that, quote, very seriously. There was one major medical headline you might have heard about this week. The FDA has approved Biogen's Alzheimer's drug. Here's why this is potentially huge news. Alzheimer's is an incurable disease that typically affects the part of the brain that controls thought, memory, and language, which means Alzheimer's can seriously affect a person's ability to carry out daily activities. It affects over 6 million people in the U.S. alone, a number that's expected to double over the next few decades. Despite this disease being so widespread, there are only five drugs in the U.S. that have been shown to delay that cognitive decline, and even those only delay the process by a few months. 
This new drug, called aducanumab, is the first ever that targets one of the illness's underlying causes, not just its symptoms. But the medical community hasn't exactly been rejoicing at this drug's approval. That's partly because in clinical trials, there were some serious side effects reported, including brain swelling and bleeding. So the medical community is worried the side effects from taking the drug may outweigh the benefits. On top of that, some Alzheimer's experts have warned, we're not sure if this drug even works. And the FDA's outside panel of experts agreed, citing a lack of evidence. While those are some big red flags, the FDA still granted approval anyways. Though we should note, the FDA technically approved this drug through an accelerated approval program, meaning the drug company can distribute it while it undergoes more testing. And if any future trials fail, the FDA can technically rescind that OG approval. But keep in mind, this process is gonna take a while, like years. And in the meantime, Biogen, the drug maker, is gonna be raking in cash. That's because aducanumab isn't cheap. It's gonna cost over $50,000 per year. And while a lot of Americans are desperate for any relief from this incurable disease, it's still too soon to tell whether this new drug is a beacon of hope or a mistake that might cost patients tens of thousands of dollars with little to show for it. Recently, there's been a lot of talk about the state of voting rights. We've told you on previous shows about voting bills that made headlines in Georgia and Texas, but this goes way beyond just a handful of states. According to one analysis from the Brennan Center, a nonpartisan law and policy institute, politicians in 48 states have introduced 389 bills to restrict voting rights just this year. And 14 states have already passed laws, making it harder for some people to cast their ballots. Since all these numbers can seem overwhelming, we wanted to look for patterns and understand how these bills are trying to change how you cast your ballot. To get some answers, we phoned an expert. I am Eliza Becker. I am a Voting Rights and Elections Counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice. So first off, why is this happening in the first place? This drive to suppress Americans' voting rights appears to come from a combination of two things. One is the historic voter turnout that we saw last year. So many Americans came out to the polls or sent in mail ballots to make their voices heard during last year's elections. And at the same time, we have also seen the perpetuation of the big lie about last year's elections, that the results were somehow improper, that there were instances of voter fraud or election irregularities. But of course, we know very clearly that Last year's election was the most secure election in American history. We don't have stats on this for every state, but in one, the swing state of Wisconsin, election officials spotted only 27 cases of possible voter fraud out of more than 3 million ballots cast in last year's election. That's even lower than a previous review of three states that use mail-in ballots, which found just 25 instances of possible fraud for every 1 million ballots cast. As in, this is really, really rare. Yet this lie is driving state lawmakers to introduce and pass laws that are purportedly aimed at creating election integrity, but what they're actually doing is just making it harder for Americans to vote and using that false narrative about fraud as a pretext, as a cover for trying to suppress the vote. Okay, so the 2020 election was a big driver for all these new voting rights bills we've been seeing. 
But what's actually in them? To break it down, we wanted to keep things simple, like dictionary simple, or as we say here at the skim, skimtionary simple. Let's start in alphabetical order with ballot drop boxes. Ballot drop boxes are one method for voters to be able to drop off their mail or absentee ballots. Often people submit their mail ballots through the USPS, through the postal system, and they drop off those ballots in the blue mailboxes that you have around town or in your cities. You can also often drop off your ballots in person at the county or local election official. But many jurisdictions also have secure ballot drop boxes that allow voters to drop off their mail ballot. And those ballots are collected usually at least once a day by local election officials and then held securely until the ballots can be counted. These drop boxes were especially important in last year's election. And submitting absentee ballots in other ways, like via snail mail, sometimes led to delays or missing strict deadlines. So ballot drop boxes made it easier for a lot of people to vote on time, but now they're being restricted around the country. There are some bills and proposals that have eliminated the use of ballot drop boxes entirely in a state. There are others that limit the number of ballot drop boxes that may be used, which really limits the effectiveness of those ballot drop boxes because they become much less convenient for voters who live far away to be able to access. Georgia, Florida, and Michigan are some states where these restrictions are already happening, and a number of states are looking to follow suit. Okay, our next term in the voting skimtionary is early voting. This one might feel kind of obvious, but let's define it anyways. Early voting is the process by which someone can cast their ballot in person before Election Day. Some states have traditional in-person early voting, where the voter goes to a polling place and casts their ballots in a polling booth on a machine in the way that they would on Election Day. Early voting is actually a really big deal. A lot of Americans voted early last year because of the pandemic. More than 100 million people, in fact. And while the pandemic could explain some of that, Early voting has more basic benefits that apply all the time. Lots of people don't have time on Election Day to be able to stand in line and go to the polls, wait their turn and cast their ballots. They have a shift that is during regular business hours. They have child care responsibilities. They have other obligations that are going to prevent them from being able to cast their ballot on the very limited hours available on Election Day. And early voting gives Americans the flexibility to cast their ballots in a way that works for their schedules, their families, and their employment. So how is early voting potentially being impacted? Well, a lot of states are looking to cut back in-person early voting hours. According to the Washington Post, restrictions on early and absentee voting are actually the most common measures coming up in all of these bills, being targeted in at least 33 states. So changes to ballot drop boxes and early voting are changes that affect how and where people vote. But some of the proposed bills are also targeting who's even able to cast a ballot in the first place. Which brings us to our next skimtionary term, voter ID laws. This one means something different depending on where you live. Voter ID laws vary across the country. There are many states that don't require a voter to present ID when they go to the polling place and those states have successful and secure elections. There are some states that require certain forms of ID, but not necessarily a photo ID. There are other states that require you to show up with a particular kind of photo ID. 
that can be difficult for many voters to obtain because they don't have access to obtaining that ID. They don't have access to the documentation that they would need in order to obtain that ID. They have transportation or accessibility challenges to overcome that make it hard for them to get that ID. Republicans have been focused on enacting stricter voter ID laws for a long time because they say they're necessary to combat voter fraud. But Swearin Becker told us that focus on combating very rare voter fraud ends up causing a bigger problem, preventing eligible people from being able to vote. Voter ID laws tend to exclude people from the voting process because there are some people who just can't get the ID or can't get it as easily as many others. And right now, a lot of states are looking to restrict what counts as ID when you're heading to the polls. Florida and Georgia have already enacted stricter voting ID laws. Same with Montana, where students can no longer use their student IDs to vote. Besides voter ID laws, states can also control who gets to cast their ballot with something called a voter roll purge. That is the process by which election administrators remove people who are ineligible from the voting rolls. And that voterless maintenance is appropriate and good. That's one of the roles of election administrators is to make sure that they're keeping those voter lists up to date. And while that sounds fairly straightforward, what we have been seeing in recent history is that these voter roll purges are undertaken without appropriate safeguards, without appropriate notice to the voters, and that people are being removed from the rolls improperly. They're being purged and they don't know about it. They're being purged even though they're still eligible to vote. And then they show up on election day and they're asked to cast a provisional ballot. They're confused as to why they're not in the poll book at the polling place that they've been voting at for 20 years. According to 538, back in March, at least 38 bills were on the table that would purge more people from voter rolls across the country, which Swearin Becker told us could increase the likelihood of flawed purges, where eligible people are removed from voter rolls for no good reason. So those are four key voting measures that are being challenged in a lot of these state bills. But before we conclude our duties as the millennial Merriam-Webster, we wanted to ask who's most likely to be affected by any of these proposed changes? What we know from the history of voting and voter suppression in the United States is that laws that make it harder for voters to cast their ballots typically burden voters of color more than white voters and also burden other voters that have accessibility challenges like voters with disabilities, rural voters, elderly voters, even younger voters. So any voter that is already maybe on the margins of the political process and has challenges to overcome in order to make their voice heard and exercise their right to vote, those are precisely the the vulnerable voters that are going to be more likely to be hurt by these voter suppression laws. If you're looking to learn more about the bills in your state, we've got a guide on our website. Head on over to theskim.com slash news for a more detailed look at voter restriction bills across the country. The hearing will come to order. Ready for a blast from the past? Today, the Senate Judiciary Committee welcomed Judge Stephen Breyer, the president's nominee to be Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. That's then-Senator Joe Biden back in 1994, beginning the confirmation hearings of a Supreme Court justice that President Biden might soon have the chance to replace. At least, that's what some pundits want to see happen. Justice Stephen Breyer was nominated by President Bill Clinton, and he joined the Supreme Court in 1994. Breyer is now 82 years old. And reminder, he can remain on the court for life. 
But lately, a number of mostly liberal commentators have been floating the idea that maybe he should throw in the towel early. Here's why. If he retired this summer, after the court decides its final cases of its term this month, Breyer could make it a whole lot more likely that a president he sees eye to eye with, like Biden, could be the one to pick his replacement. That's the opposite of what happened with liberal justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg last year. She had reportedly been pressured to retire for years, especially when President Barack Obama could have replaced her with another liberal-minded judge. Instead, after a long cancer fight, the 87-year-old RBG died last year and was succeeded by conservative justice Amy Coney Barrett. That shifted the court from having a 5-4 conservative majority to its current 6-3 conservative majority, an ideological balance that could last for decades. Besides avoiding a repeat of that, Breyer might have another thing to consider. If he retired this summer, he'd do so in a non-election year. Reminder, President Obama tried to appoint a Supreme Court justice eight months before the 2016 presidential election. But then Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, nice try, I'm gonna leave it to the next president, who happened to be Donald Trump, to fill this seat. And that's exactly what happened. Sure, 2022 is a midterm election year, not a presidential one. And yes, Democrats technically hold the narrowest of majorities in the Senate now. And yes, Mitch McConnell didn't seem too concerned about confirming Justice Barrett just days before the 2020 presidential election. So all of those things are different now. But some on the left are saying, why take the risk of history repeating itself here? Let's avoid having a Supreme Court opening in any sort of election year. So what's next? That's ultimately up to Justice Breyer, and we should add a number of commentators on the left are telling him to stand firm. Some say he's a thought leader on the court. Give this guy some respect and don't push him out. And also, he's healthy, so what's the rush? Ultimately, when or if Breyer decides to retire is TBD, but if you hear that topic keep coming up in addition to talk of this year's big Supreme Court rulings in the next few weeks, now you know why. Delta, Theta, Beta, Lambda, Mu, Ooh, Ah, Delta, Mu! Gotta love some L Woods and the Greek alphabet, which for most of us is only associated with Greek life. But that's about to change. That's because the World Health Organization just recommended that news outlets start referring to variants of COVID by ambiguous sounding Greek letter nicknames. The variant that emerged last year in the United Kingdom it's now Alpha, while a variant first found in South Africa is Beta. So far, 10 variants have been matched with their Greek letters, including two strains first spotted in the US, Epsilon and Iota. But the Greek letter you're most likely to hear in the news is Delta. And no, we're not talking about Delta, Delta, Delta. The Delta variant was first spotted in October, and for about a month now, scientists have been talking about it as the most concerning variant in the world. It's believed to be the most transmissible and the most capable of infecting people who've only been partially vaccinated. The Delta variant has reportedly spread to more than 60 countries and is partly responsible for a recent spike in cases in India, where it was also first observed. And that's why you might have heard the Delta variant previously called the Indian variant. But now the WHO hopes that can be a thing of the past. 
In explaining its decision to go Greek, the WHO said labeling variants based on the country where they were detected was stigmatizing and discriminatory. For instance, attacks against Chinese Americans spiked last year when some politicians called COVID the China virus. If you're still skeptical and thinking, leave the Greek letters to frat row, a top official at the WHO disagrees. She recently tweeted that no country should be stigmatized for detecting and reporting variants. For instance, a small country might not want to be known after a virus strain, but that fear shouldn't prevent them from sharing important health information. So, despite the fact that school's out for the summer, get ready for the headlines to start sounding like Fall Rush. Oh, to be a baby again. The world stretching far and wide in front of us, free from the pressure of adult responsibilities, and unburdened by expectations. Wait, what's this? I'm already worldwide famous? Hold up, even my name is a news item? What did you make of the name, Lilibet? Does it sound like a sports betting app? <laughs> Lilibet Diana Mountbatten-Windsor, the baby daughter of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, was born last Friday. And it did not take long for the media to prove exactly why Harry and Meghan have tried to stay out of the spotlight. I just feel, you know, either call her Lily or call her Lily, but... It's a complete suck-up to the Queen, isn't it? I think it's quite rude to Her Majesty. I do think the name is a little bit of a PR stunt. Is this a touching tribute or something actually a little bit grubby? All this toxic tabloid coverage isn't our style. So we called up Omid Scobie, the royal correspondent for Harper's Bazaar, and a biographer of Harry and Meghan. Unlike some of the folks on British cable news, he's a fan of how Harry and Meghan pulled off the always delicate diplomacy of naming their second child. We always knew there'd be that nod to Diana, of course. She was so important to Harry, still remains very much at the centre of the work that he does today. But that tribute to the Queen really goes to highlight the close relationship that they have with her separately from the institution of the monarchy, which of course we know they have not had such a good relationship with. You probably know the story by now, but Lilibet is what Queen Elizabeth's grandfather, King George V, called her as a young girl. She apparently struggled to pronounce her name, and for those who knew her best, that nickname stuck. Prince Philip also called her Lilibet. In fact, he was one of the last people to call her Lilibet before he passed away earlier this year. So I think it's quite sweet for her to be able to hear that nickname continue. But I think also nice for her to also know how special she is to Prince Harry, because again, we don't often see the nicknames of royals attached to new royal offspring. And of course, this name has sort of a dual tribute, because it's also a tribute to Meghan's mother, Doria, who when Meghan was a little girl, she would call her flower or bud. And Meghan's favorite flower is the lily. And so they've kind of really ticked as many boxes as they could. Scobie says royal names are always a little political. They're a way to preserve certain legacies or pay tribute to relatives. Some British royals have had as many as seven first names to cater to everyone's interests. And even Prince Harry's first name is actually Henry Charles Albert David. 
Despite that, for a while, Scobie thought Harry and Meghan might go off in a totally different direction with this latest name. I secretly hoped that they were going to go super L.A. with the name of their child, sort of Leaf or Silver or Peach or whatever it is. Just name it after some inanimate object or flower or, sorry, even fruit. But ultimately, he says... Given the unique position Harry and his growing family occupies, expecting something too off the beaten path was probably never in the cards. We have to remember that Harry was born a prince. And yes, of course, he's broken away from the working model that the royal family uh, work by, but he hasn't denied his roots whilst also living a life that doesn't have ties to the institution of the monarchy, which is where they experienced most of their problems. To hear more from Omid, an updated paperback edition of his Harry and Meghan biography, Finding Freedom, is coming out on August 31st. We've left a link to it in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Kira Long. This episode was engineered by Andrew Calloway. The Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. <laughs>